Welcome to Salt and Light with Pastor Rodney Finch. Salt and Light is a radio outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Cary. Jesus, speak to me. Open your word and reveal your heart to me. Salt and Light is a series of verse-by-verse studies through the Bible, focusing on its practical application to our everyday lives. Salt and Light is recorded live at Calvary Chapel, Cary, in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us, so be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of Revelation, chapter 15. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney. God knows, God cares that on any given day in this country, 1,115 abortions are performed. God cares that millions starve to death every year while harvested crops are destroyed and plowed down by evil governments. You know, God cares about sin. And God in his mercy, it is God's mercy, make no mistake, as his mercy has allowed men to get away with their sin this far. But one day, the Bible says, the wrath of God will be complete. One day. Hold your finger right here in Revelation and turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. I want to show you something. Genesis chapter 15. Turn quick. Let me hear your pages. Turn quick. <laughs> Genesis chapter 15. It's here in Genesis chapter 15 that God is speaking to Abraham. Notice in Genesis 15 verse 13, if you're there, say amen. And then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Notice God says to Abraham, Abraham, you're going to have a whole nation of descendants in a land that is not theirs. And 400 years, for 400 years, these people will be afflicted. They will be enslaved. And it's true, we all know the story. The Jewish people were in the land of Egypt, you know, for how long? 400 years. And they were enslaved and they were afflicted. And when they left the land, the Bible tells us that they took with them great possessions. They took treasures. They took food. They took gold. They took jewelry. And then after 400 years... Notice in verse 16, but in the fourth generation or the 400th year, they shall return here for their, for the iniquity, note this, of the Amorites is not yet complete. Notice that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, when they came out of Egypt, you know the story. God told them to destroy all the people who dwelt in the land of Canaan. And there were many people who dwelt in the land of Canaan. There was the, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, the, the, uh, the, all the other ites. 
And there was this group known as the Amorites. And in the fourth generation or in the 400th year, God was going to judge the Amorites for their sin. God's judgment toward the Amorites will be complete in the 400th year or the fourth generation. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to judge the Amorites at a specific time when my judgment is complete. God will get to the place with these particular people, the Amorites, that he will say, enough is enough. Oh, it's much like we do with our children. You know, your kids, they continue to get on your one last frayed nerve. And you say, listen, enough is, I about had it with you. Enough is enough. Well, God gets to the same place now. God said he's going to judge them for the sin of the Amorites. Now, what is the sin of the Amorites? Well, the Amorites were an incredibly, as a matter of fact, in my study, some of the things that I have learned and discovered about the Amorites, their practices were so evil and so filthy and so incredibly vile that I can't even speak them from the pulpit. These were an incredibly evil, perverse, cruel, and brutal people. It's interesting that they would, when they were to build something, build a house or build a shop or build a building, they go to the city and get a permit, and they would begin to build their building, and when they were done, just before they were complete, they would take their three, four, five-year-old and they would put the child in the wall of their building and they would seal the child up alive and seal the building. And then day after day, week after week, they might hear the screams and the torture of their child until the child died. And then they would, they would do that as an offering to their pagan deity that that God or that pagan deity might, might bless them. They might find favor with them. All kinds of unspeakable and shocking evils about the Amorites. Now God, notice, God who is a God of incredible kindness and patience, he says in verse 16, I will give them 400 years to get right. So Abraham, your seed will be down in Egypt for 400 years because of the sin of the Amorites, because it is not yet complete. In other words, the 400 years God was waiting for the Amorites to turn from their sin. And then finally, God says, enough is enough. Now, I tell you that, point this out to you, because how many people know people who will say, now, how come, how can a God of love, they go to the Old Testament and see how God wiped out whole nations, God wiped out whole families and children, and, they, and it'd be bloody, a bloodbath, and they would say to you, now, you tell me, how can a God of love allow these kinds of things? 
and they accuse God and they shake their fist at God. How many people are like that? Well, listen, God is a God of love. God is a God of patience. God is a God of mercy. But God does get to the place where he says enough is enough. And as you go to the Old Testament and you see these people that have been wiped out and completely annihilated, well, that's because God got to the place with those people that God said enough is enough. God's wrath has come to a place of completion and God wipes them out. Now the Amorites, God gave them 400 years to repent and they didn't. Our country is 200 plus years old. Think about it. God gave the Amorites twice that time to repent and they refused. And God, in God, it's patience and God's mercy got to the place where he said, enough is enough. Someone once said, the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. And that's so true. So here in Revelation chapter 15, God has waited for men to come to Jesus for 2,000 years. God is patient and long-suffering, but his patience and his long-suffering isn't eternal. There's coming a day when men will see the ultimate, absolute conclusion of the wrath of God. The bowl is now full, and God's wrath is complete and ready to be poured out. Notice in verse 2, And I saw something like a glass, a sea of glass, mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, notice that. And notice they're singing a song. They're singing two songs the song of Moses, and the song of the Lamb. John is caught up in the heavenly scene, and he sees the wrath of God is now filled up. The bowls are full and about to be poured out. And he saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. We talked about this sea of glass some time ago. It speaks of the holiness and the glory of God. And the fire speaks of divine judgment proceeding from God's holiness. And notice John also sees those who have been martyred during the tribulation, those who refused to take the mark of the beast, who were killed for their testimony. Those who were killed for their testimony. You know, I'm confident. Remember, we're in the middle of the tribulation. I'm confident that the Antichrist thought that he was getting rid of them. He probably thought, good got rid of these wacko Christians preaching all the time and saving people. And he probably thought, good, got rid of them. You know, the Bible says that they, was, they were victorious. Did you notice that? Did you notice that? Those who have the victory over the beast. You see that? They were victorious. The Antichrist thinks he's getting rid of them, but they're actually considered victorious. You know, here on the earth, you know, you might not seem in your life right now to be victorious. But do you know in heaven, God sees us as victorious. You know, people might think they're getting over on you now, not paying you enough, taking advantage of you at work not giving you the grades you deserve in school here on the earth. But do you know, in heaven, God says, you are victorious. You know, I found, found out, pardon me, I found out in my study 
the early Christians, the early church, they consistently described the day of martyrdom as a day of victory. You know, like the movie, The Gladiators, we've all seen The Gladiators and how in The Gladiators they, um, they bring the families in, into the Colosseum and Nero or Diocletian or whatever has ordered the, all the Christians be killed and they would bring the families into the Colosseum and feed them one by one to the lions and all kinds of awful, awful, horrendous things that happen to our brothers and sisters. And you read the Fox's Book of Martyrs and you can get a history on what happened as Nero killed these our brothers and sisters, one after one by one, and family after family, and would kill them and had them eaten by dogs and wrap them in animal skins and feed them to lions and dip them in wax and set them on fire. And all of these things, the day of martyrdom. It's amazing to me that it's these Christians, these martyrs, considered that day, the day of martyrdom, as a day of victory. A day of victory? Yeah. They considered the fact that they were able to suffer for Christ in this way as a day of victory. And remember the context here. Let's not lose it. Pastor John, who is exiled to the island of Patmos, is writing to Christians who are suffering at the, under the throne of Rome. Interesting, he gets to heaven and the first thing he sees is a throne set in heaven. John, be encouraged. Here's a throne set in heaven. And these Christians, John's congregants, John's people that he pastored, they're suffering under the throne of Rome. And John says, listen, you'll have victory over the beast. You will have victory you are more, I could hear John saying, you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. You're more than a conqueror. Don't forget that. And these Christians, they saw the day of martyrdom as a day of victory. And notice, they saw it as a day of victory and they could sing two songs. You remember Paul and Silas, they were in prison? And you remember, they were, they were in prison chained up and, and they were singing and worshiping God? And what happened? The prison doors were shaken and the shackles were loosed and they were set free. And they worshiped and they praised God. Even through their trial and through their chains and through their suffering. And here we see these tribulation saints, they are singing two songs. The song of Moses is recorded in Exodus 15 if you're taking notes. And notice the song of the Lamb first heard right here in Revelation 15. The song of Moses in Exodus 15 and the song of the Lamb in Revelation 15. It's actually Exodus 14 and 15. You know the story. We all know it so well. The people of God had just left Egypt. Pharaoh and his army are in hot pursuit. And they find themselves, the people of God find themselves caught between a rock and a hard place. Mount Piahirath and Mount Migdal, two mountains on each side, and they're running from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's in hot pursuit. They turn around with their backs to the Red Sea, and they see Pharaoh coming, and they're probably thinking, that's it. It's over. We've gone as far as we can go. Moses takes his staff. You know the story. You saw Charlton Heston, and he raises it up over the Red Sea, and what happens? The sea parted. 
And the people of God, they move through on dry ground. They get to the other side, and that is where they sing the song of Moses. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. And here in chapter 15, they sing the song of the Lamb. There's some interesting contrast between the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses was sung on the shores of the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb was sung on a crystal sea. The song of Moses deals with how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb describes how God brings his people in. The song of Moses was scripture's first song. The song of the Lamb will be scripture's last song. The song of Moses was about overcoming Egypt. The song of the Lamb is about overcoming Babylon and the king the kingdom of the Antichrist. And notice the song gives praises. Notice this here in verse 3. It gives praises to God's work, God's ways, God's worthiness, and God's worship. Notice gives praise to God's works. Great and marvelous are your works, O God. Lord God Almighty. Someone should put some music to these words. Great and marvelous are your works. God's ways, just and true, are your ways. Great is God. God is righteous and just and true and always fair. God's worthiness, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. And then notice God's worship, for all nations shall come and worship before you. The song gives praises to God's works, God's ways, God's worthiness, and God's worship. And keep in mind, as I pointed out, these are tribulation saints, and they're singing this song. I like that. Notice they're not complaining about how they had to suffer. There's no mention of their achievements or, or their goodness. They don't ever say, oh Lord, how faithful we have been to you. How true we have been to your word. How steadfastly we have endured. Notice the only pronoun used in this song are you and your. Why? Because they have the heart of worship. These tribulation saints, they understand worship. You see, worship is about God. Worship's not about us. Amen? Worship is all about God. And then notice in verses 5 through 8, Notice after these things, John says, I looked and behold, the temple and the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came seven angels having the seven plagues. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke. Notice that. The seven angels come from the very presence of God. It's like these angels, they just step out of the tabernacle. They step right out of the, from the very presence of God himself. And they step from a place of absolute holiness to execute judgment upon the place of absolute wickedness. And notice they are clothed in pure white linen, which speaks of righteousness. In other words, what they're doing is right and just. And they are bound in golden girdles, which speak of beauty. And what they're about to do in chapter 16 is painful but necessary. 
Notice the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. The holy smoke of God's glory so fills the temple that no one can enter. In other words, God will not be turned from judgment. There'll be no delays, no more second chances. Repentance is impossible. I mean, think about this. Prayer doesn't matter at this time. Did you ever thought about it? There's going to come a time where prayer doesn't matter. Prayer doesn't matter. There's no changing of God's mind or God's heart. It's too late. Notice the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. Exodus chapter 40, you remember when, Exodus, when, when Moses built the tabernacle and there were two compartments. There was the holy place and then there was the most holy place. And separating these two compartments was the veil of the temple. And in the most holy place, you know, was the Ark of the Covenant. And the, the winged angels were on top of the Ark. And then above the Ark of the Covenant hovered the Shekinah glory of God, or the kabod, the weight of God's glory. And when Moses built the tabernacle, the Bible says, that the smoke covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, I love this verse, when Solomon finished building his tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant was brought in and then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priest, get this, you guys, the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house. That's amazing. God's presence and God's glory was so powerful and so thick in his house that the priest could not do their job. They couldn't stand in the presence of God. The kabod, the weight of his glory was in the house and the priest could not stand. Oh, would to God when we worship that the presence of the Lord would so fill this house that we, you ever have a time when you're just worshiping the Lord and, you know, God's presence is so thick and so heavy. It's happened to me where, where I, I can't even sing. I can't sing, and when I start to sing, tears just flow because of the weight of his glory and because of his presence. The Shekinah glory of God filled the temple. And then Isaiah chapter 6, how could we forget? I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one cried to the other, say it with me, you guys, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with his smoke. The Lord loves to fill his house with his presence. But here in Revelation chapter 15, the same thing happened, only much bigger, much bigger. 
The weight of God's glory filled the house. Only this time, God is about to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting, sinful world. And God's glory and power is too intense to be around. You might want to write this in your Bible. God is fired up. It's intense. It's hot. The end is near. And then notice in chapter 16, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. (laughs) And so the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth. And a foul and loathsome sore came upon men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. And then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. And then the third bowl or vial, the fourth, the fifth in verse 10, the sixth in verse 12, and the seventh bowl, the seventh vial. We'll look at all these in detail next week. You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch and Calvary Chapel Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at 1-800-293-0923. That's 1-800-293-0923. Or you may listen to today's broadcast in its entirety by visiting the media library on our website at cccarry.org. We would like to thank you for tuning in to Salt and Light and pray that you have been blessed. Until next time, may you be salt and light.